So let's get to it. Acts 9, verses 19b through 31. We're going to continue with the story of Saul. Now, I'm just about tired of saying Saul or Paul, so I may do both in this sermon, but eventually I'm going to just drop Saul altogether and talk about Paul. So I, it may even happen this morning, I don't know. But you understand, when we talk about Saul, we're talking about Paul, or when we're talking about Paul, we're talking about Saul. So you've got to just follow that, uh, follow that and, and maybe you can keep the story straight. So let's look at the text together. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for, that, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he, attended, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how the, on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together. Lord, may we give our attention to what you want to say this morning through your word, through this story of transformation in the life of one, the one you had chosen to be an instrument in building up your church. May we find in it the application of where what we have learned this morning can be applied to our walk in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I think a bit of review of the text from last Sunday is going to be helpful, as this passage this morning is a continuation of Saul or the Apostle Paul's conversion. You remember that Saul was on the road to Damascus to carry out the murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. Before he reached the city, he was surrounded by a light from heaven and a voice called him out, called him out by name. The encounter was Saul seeing and hearing the very one whom he had sought to eradicate 
from the minds and hearts of those who had claimed Jesus as their Lord and would choose to recognize him and identify him as the Messiah. He wanted to crush the movement and discredit the very name of Jesus. Knocked to his knees and struck blind, he's eventually led into the city not having a clue of what's going to happen next. While all this is going on, and he is fasting and praying, a period over three days, God is speaking to another, and his name is Ananias, a devout disciple. And God instructed Ananias to go to Saul, to lay hands on him, and to restore his sight. He was aware of Saul's reputation, and he was also aware of the very purpose of why Saul was coming to Damascus. And for this very reason, he was reluctant to go. Uh, he even, in some ways, implied, was God aware why he was coming? <laughs> but he obeyed. We read in Acts 9.17 how it unfolded. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Such faith. <laughs> wow. Faith in going toward the one who was coming after you. One whose mission was to destroy your life. Maybe even take it. Faith to take God at his word. That he could be used as an instrument involved in performing the miracle of giving the very sight back to the blind man, Saul. Faith. To see the one who called himself an enemy, your enemy, only to be able to call him your brother. We read in Acts 22 that Ananias addressed one of Saul's burning questions as he laid his hands. Remember those questions? He said, who are you, Lord? Uh, uh, what is it you want me to do? And so Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? <laughs> Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins and call on his name. And that's exactly what Ananias, or that's exactly what Saul did. Immediately, we read, immediately, first the scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, took food and was strengthened. And then we read, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. The amazement of those who heard him was not so much because of the message that he was bringing to them, but the fact that just it was a few days earlier he had come to silence the very message that now he is proclaiming. And the reputation of this preacher overshadowed the truth that he was speaking. However, in those days following his conversion, 
not only in his passionate words, but also through the very actions, he bore evidence of God's transforming, loving power upon him, giving him strength, and then also giving him credibility, credibility of the message that he brought forth as a testimony, a witness of what God can do in changing a life. Luke, the author of this book, and the one who was telling the story, reports that many days Paul spent in Damascus and how a, a plot was brewing to kill him. But Saul, or Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, speaks of a period in his ministry that would have occurred sometime between his conversion and again, a period of time in Damascus. These are Paul's own words as he wrote to the church in Galatia. But when he, meaning God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately go with anyone. I, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I was, went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, meaning Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. So he is converted. He's in Damascus and he's converted. And he's there for a period of time, not knowing exactly how long, but then goes to Arabia, staying in Arabia, not exactly sure how long, but then comes back to Damascus to preach again. And this is when the plot unfolds to kill him. How long he was in Arabia, we don't know. And what was his purpose in going there? We can only imagine. I Again, we refer to some of the words uh, in the commentary by Kent Hughes, where he says, the purpose of Paul, Paul's time in Arabia is unknown. Possibly he went there to evangelize, but the area was so sparsely populated, it was always Saul's strategy to go to the metropolitan areas where the population centers were. He must have left Damascus, maybe for, to, to reduce church persecution. And just think about that a minute. Saul is the spearhead of all this. And so by his absence, he can diffuse a lot of the persecution that was being pointed toward the Christians in Damascus. And then we also can consider that probably he went to Arabia to meditate and to study. I kind of lean toward the latter uh, reasoning or thought that it was a period of time, his wilderness experience, much like the time that Moses would have taken after he was involved in murder in Egypt and fled for his life, only to spend some time in the wilderness before God got a hold of him. And I think it was a time for him to meditate and think through and search for the answers to those questions we talked about last week. Who are you, Lord? And what is it you want me to do? And so he took this season just to, again, possibly to unravel the mystery of it all and to find the focus that God had in mind for him. So three years have passed since his conversion, and he returns to Damascus only to be the target of persecution and death threats that he himself 
had brought to his own brothers and sisters in Christ three years earlier. It was his brothers and sisters in Christ who orchestrated his escape and made a way for him to leave Damascus, putting him in a basket, lowering him over the wall, getting him out of town. And he headed for Jerusalem. With a desire to join the disciples there, his past again would haunt him. He could not get away from his past in the minds of many. It would be the cause for fear and suspicion. For we read, And they were all afraid of him, all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. The disciples in Jerusalem were afraid of Saul. And basically, pointing again to what they remembered about this guy. The word but is such a powerful word because we say, we read, but Barnabas, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared that how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, you remember Barnabas? He was the guy who had some property and chose to sell it. And all that he had received in terms of the, the value and sale of the property, he laid at the apostles' feet to enable him to continue with the ministry. This, this uh, Barnabas, who is also recognized as the son of encouragement, who also is later identified as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I love that. What a, what a tremendous description of a follower of Christ. One who is a good man or a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Something that we all wish we could attain. It was Barnabas who took the risk in claiming Saul as his brother, just like Ananias did. His friendship paved the way for Saul to be, to be among the apostles, and Saul took the whole opportunity while in Jerusalem to speak boldly of the Lord, which only brought against him again those who wanted to silence him, those who were scheming to kill him, to put him out of commission. Learning of this, the brothers, I love it, the brothers, the ones that called him brother are now recognized as his brothers, brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown. He's going back home. Just a footnote here, which I think is really interesting. We won't hear of Saul again until we get into book or uh, the 11th chapter of Acts. That's when his name will surface again. And it's when once more, it's Barnabas who finds him and brings with him, brings Saul with him to the church in Antioch, where they ministered together, and which was the launching pad for the missionary journeys that Paul was soon to establish. That took place um, that for, for Barnabas to go to, to Tarsus and, and to get Saul and bring him to Antioch. That took place um, seven years after he had left Jerusalem. That means it took 
10 years after his conversion to find his place of ministry in Antioch. Uh, we always want things so fast. God has a way of maturing things. God has a way of bringing things to the, the fullness that they need to be. And so this 10-year this period was only shaping of the man that God had chosen as his instrument to take the gospel into the rest of the world. It's an amazing story, holding the elements of a great novel. You got adventure, you got intrigue, you got mystery, you got suspense. It's all there. It's a great story. But the storyline is only a means by which we are reminded of the powerful and loving God who made it all happen. For a man like Saul, so filled with prejudices and hate, had to be struck blind in order to see. <laughs> the story of Saul's spiritual transformation ought to remind us, never write off anyone as being beyond the love of Christ. You may know those that you wonder, those who have a, a reputation, if ever, those that, that you have been concerned about and prayed for for years. Will it ever happen? Or, or those that you know have deliberately turned their back on Jesus and have chosen a wayward way that is self-destructive. Will it ever happen? Or the ones who are caught up in the teaching of false, false doctrine or, or an occult of sorts, so, so given and driven to, to their beliefs that they can't see the truth itself. God, scriptures say this as clear as it can be said, God can reach anyone. God can reach anyone. At the same time, the text set before us, we need to recognize that others were chosen instruments in order to bring it all about, this transforming work done in Saul's life. As Saul was identified as God's chosen instrument, so was Ananias and Barnabas. By listening to God, being obedient, they did so much toward distilling the hate and fear and doubt that once controlled the mind and heart of Saul. Their kindness towards him contributed to the discovery of a, of a love that conquers hate and fear and doubt. And their coming alongside him also diluted the distrust and suspicions other had toward him, toward Saul. If the church today but only practice the faith of an Ananias or Barnabas. How healthy the churches would be. Obedient, outreaching, embracing, taking risk. We just sang it just a few minutes ago. Taking a risk for the cause of Christ. They were encouragers. Saul was outside the fellowship. They invited him in. They were willing to risk rejection, even opposition, 
out of a desire to share the love that they themselves had found and experienced in Jesus. The passage that Sarah read to us from 1 Thessalonians should be a reminder to us individually as well as the church. I read again portions of it concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And and then later in Paul's letter, the same letter, he writes these words. Encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. Admonish the the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I, I landed on the word particularly to build one another up. That's what Barnabas was doing for Saul. That's what Ananias did to begin with. That's what we are charged to do to one another. And to look for ways to incorporate or, or, or engage others in what could be experienced as we would share Christ with them. I'm going to just read some passages of the scriptures to you, and we're going to discuss them during the discipleship hour because there's so, let's see, there's one, two, three, there's eight sermons right here on this page, and we won't have time for that this morning. But I want to, to lay this on you for you to think about of how we are to be encouragers, how we are to build one another up within our fellowship and those with maybe on the fringe of our fellowship and maybe those that we would like to invite into our fellowship. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. I should give you the references, I guess. Uh, let me back up then. First Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And it's happening in this church. I have, to, I have to bear testimony to that, how I've seen you encourage one another and help one another and encourage and help uh, building each other up. Proverbs 11.25, Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters himself will be watered. I don't know why it was, but um, when I read that verse in preparing for the sermon, I thought of William Ritchie bringing a bag full of groceries last week or two weeks ago, laying them out there for everybody, you know, <laughs> blessing us with the richnesses that, that riches, uh, the vegetables <laughs> that came from his garden. And it, it was, it was a, a way of building us up through generosity. Romans 14, 18 through 19. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so that let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building up. We need to look and see what it's going to take for us to be able to encourage one another. Listen to one another. Recognize where people are in their life and their journey for Christ. And if you can come alongside them and encourage them, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may be give, give grace to those who hear. It's not so much even what we say, but for us or even entertain what might be said about someone. Check it. Don't let that kind of stuff be a part of the conversation. Never talk negatively of someone within the fellowship or outside the fellowship. Speak well of them. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you do see the day drawing near, the coming of Jesus Christ. I, I really believe that if we are a family, we should be looking for every, taking every opportunity to be together as a family. And, and as much as there are schedules that pull us and take us and, and demand of us to do different things during the day or the week, if we can be there for the church, if it's, if it's a discipleship offer, if it's Wednesday night, if it's an activity for the church, we're family. We should be there. We should be there. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There is so much to learn from one another. There's, a, there's, there's, there's the opportunity of you bearing testimony of what Jesus is doing in your life. And that's speaking into each other's lives. That's why it's so important for us to have this conversation with, with, with one another concerning Christ. And how he himself is involved in our lives and we in his. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, and I've already read it, but I'll read it again. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays an evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. At that should be our, our mode of operation, doing good to one another, doing good to everyone in the name of Jesus Christ. So I just, I just close with this thought. Paul was saying to the church in Thessalonica, you know how to do it. <laughs> no one needs to tell you how to do it. Just do it more and more.